Thank you, Peyton. And uh, good morning. I just want to say from the get-go, I can't sing, but when we do doxology, I sound awesome. So thank you, Peyton, for inflating my already fragile ego. Hey, I do want to say uh, good morning. I want to welcome you. My name's Eric, and I get to be the pastor of the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. And we're glad you're here. We don't think it's an accident that you're here. Because there are none of those when it comes to God's people gathering together. You just heard Peyton read from Psalm 105. I love to start off our services with the Psalms because the Psalms are from the inspired hymn book of a nation. I don't know if you think about the Psalms that way, but the Psalms are not merely a collection of poems and some lyrical verse written by a bunch of different people. The Psalms are the inspired hymn book of the nation. That is the nation of Israel. That is the Son of God, as Israel is called in Exodus chapter 4. So you have a bunch of different people like David and Asaph and Etan and some others that write these psalms that are supposed to be corporately and communally recited rhythmically, perhaps even melodically, as the covenant people, as the messianic people. Now that psalm would go on to talk about the, the, the exploits of Yahweh, what he accomplished in his bringing the children of Israel into the land. There's several of those psalms so that the children of Israel could practice their lore, L-O-R-E. Now, I want you to know that for me and my household, lore is a really big deal. At just about every meal that we sit down and take together, we play a variety or a version of 20 questions, except it's usually way more than 20 questions because we make it super tricky. And then when it's your turn to do your 20 questions subject, you can choose from four categories. You can choose a person, a place, or a thing. Now, those are pretty self-explanatory. The person is what it is, real or not real, a place, what's real or not real, or a thing, real or not real. But the fourth category that you can choose is lore. And everyone goes, ooh, lore, yeah, here we go. So it'll be me, and I'll say, I've got one. And they say, okay, what is it, a person? No, is it a place? No, is it a thing? No, ooh, it's lore, yes. Okay, does it involve one of us in the family? Yes. Did it happen here at our house? Yes. Did it happen inside? No. Did it happen in the front yard? No. Did it happen in the backyard? Yes. Is it true? Yes. And then inevitably, Joshua will go, oh, is it that time that you poured five gallons of gasoline in the fire pit thinking it was diesel, then you lit it, and you blew your eyebrows off, and you were face down in the bathtub in ice water, and your mother-in-law had to take care of you? Yeah. Yeah, Josh, that's it. <laughs> God. He just, yeah, he, he gets and we rehearse those things. It deeply ingrains our lore, what it means to be a Barton. And, and we retell those stories again. Usually what it means to be a Barton is someone has had the opportunity at several times during the day to point their finger and to laugh at dad. That's okay. That forms and forges our familial identity. And what is it turns out that is incredibly impactful and influential in forming and forging the idea of an individual. Now, as it turns out, surprise, surprise, Susan and I, we're not all that clever because God has been doing this with his people for millennia. God loves the lore of getting people to recount and to remember and to recite and to provide refrains of his blessings. 
When a family rehearses and recounts their lore, it reminds them of who and whose they are and what their purpose and point is. And when a faith community recounts and is reminded, then it reminds us of whose we are, who we are, and what our purpose and point is. And so that actually sets us up for our big idea for this morning, and it goes like this. Count our blessings. Count our blessings. And increasingly, we as a campus, we as a faith community, will have a lure that more deeply, more clearly, more boldly, and more brightly articulates who we are that gives us encouragement, it gives us invigoration to live out the day-by-day monotony that can sometimes be mundane, sometimes be maddening. But when we count our blessings, those little middle moments actually take on savor and spice. Count our blessings. That's the point of our passage this morning because we are in the book of Joshua chapter 12. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Joshua chapter 12. While you're turning there, just as a quick, quick way of review, we have been in the book of Joshua since early fall last year. The book of Joshua is about the conquest where Joshua, God is our salvation, that's our series theme, Joshua, for whom the book is named, is leading the people of Israel into the land of promise. They were dead. You must understand that. They were dead, separate, outside God's plan and provision in the land. They have been in Egypt, death, for 400 plus years. They've been led through death into life, and the Son of God will enter into bounty and provision and prosperity. The book of Joshua is about judgment and salvation. And we've made it through a good chunk of this book. I have reminded you that Moses leads the children around and writes the Pentateuch. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses has died. He's handed over the reins to Joshua. Joshua has now walked in across the Jordan River, and he's taken a couple of key spots. He was duped in a covenant with the Gibeonites. He took the southern half of Canaan. And last week we heard where he took the northern half of Canaan. But now in chapter 12... We're just going to get sort of the summary, the review, the cataloging of some of the high points that took place in the first 11 chapters. Chapter 12 is the detailed recounting. Now, full disclosure, complete transparency. When we outlined and tried to figure out how we were going to schedule the book of Joshua back in the summer, when we sat down and like, okay, here's how we're going to tackle the book of Joshua, we thought it would be a pretty good idea to just basically take it in bite-sized chunks, one chapter at a time. And we looked and we saw chapter 12 and went, ugh, that's going to be horrible. Eh, we'll worry about that next year. Well, it's 2023 and here we are in Joshua chapter 12. Confessionally, it is one of the weirdest, most challenging chapters in all of your Bible to preach. I still maintain that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, instruction, reproof, and rebuke. That's 2 Timothy 3. That doesn't mean that all scripture is equally preachable. (laughs) There are virtually no verbs in this chapter. It's just a bunch of Hebrew dead people. (sighs) or Gentile dead people, even better. So what's going on? Why is this book, why is it in our Bible? Well, again, just a quick reminder. Chapters 1 through 5 is about the entrance into the land. Chapters 6 through 12 are about the conquest of the land. Chapters 13 to 24 are about the distribution or the allotment of the land. So here we are. 
We're going to start off in Joshua chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, knowing now what you know. The writer says, Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan uh, toward the sunrise from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon with all the Arabah eastward. What's going on? We've been talking about the first five chapters or the entrance of the land, chapters 6 through 12 or the conquest of the land. But here in Gen or Joshua chapter 12, verse 1, we're starting with something that takes place east of the Jordan, towards the sunrise. Then as now, I am told, the sun rises in the east. And so this is a little bit of Hebraic metaphoric language to say everything east of the Jordan River, we're going to start with a couple battles there. That's very interesting. Before they ever even cross into the land of Canaan, into the promised land. And in fact, those two battles were led by Moses, not even by Joshua, the guy for whom our book is named. So why? What's going on there? We get this whole review. What's going on? Well, as it turns out, this is going to provide our first point of application or implication or our first portable principle for the morning. I know that usually I give a couple points or principles at the end of the sermon. Today, unusually because of the type of text that we have, first point's going to come in line. They all will. The first one goes like this. God's people are God's people because of God's work and God's word. For you auditory listener learners out there, let me say it again. God's people are God's people because of God's work and God's word. Well, duh. I mean, we all kind of know that intellectually, academically, but it's absolutely key that we look at the ancient messianic people, the covenant community of Israel, and see how concerned Scripture seems to be for the ties that bind God's people together. As the children of Israel... Again, God's son, what he's called in Exodus 4, comes up out of Egypt to the land that God's promised them. It requires them to encounter some hostiles, some aggressive, angry peoples before they enter into what God has promised. Can that happen? It's called life. Because of the world system that is fallen, that is architected and arranged and arrayed against the perfect plan and peace of God, we're going to encounter resistance. My own flesh, my own depravity, my own sin nature, my own rebellion gets in the way. And then we have a real and active enemy that increasingly provides resistance. So God has promised this land. He's promised this place. And yet there's going to be resistance. And so what we're going to find is they're going to encounter some warring armies that are very large and very scary and very dangerous. And they're going to have victory there. And then two and a half of the tribes of Israel are going to ask to stay on the east side of the Jordan. That's a bit of a wrinkle, a bit of a surprise. Well, what's going on? The tribes of Reuben and Manasseh and Gad, eh, they're more like ranchers than they are farmers. The land on the west side of the Jordan, Canaan, is very fertile and agricultural. The land on the east side of the Jordan is more rugged and it's more given for flocks of sheep and goats and even cattle and oxen that they brought up out of Egypt. And so two and a half of those tribes ask God and Moses, hey, once we're done conquering everything, can we stay on the east side? God says, I see your point. Fine, fair enough. Moses says, well, if God says so, I say so. Great, good. And so those two and a half tribes are going to end up settling on the east side of the Jordan once everything is finished. And we're told in chapter 22 that they begin to fear that they're no longer considered Yahweh's people because the strip of water separates them. 
They say, well, hold on a second. We're on the east side of the Jordan, but we're still Israel. We're still Yahweh's people. We're still a part of the covenant community. Don't forget about us. And so Joshua or his scribe, understanding the importance of the tie that binds that God's people identify as God's people, reminds them that God's people are God's people, not because of a geographic location or because of a particular political bent. They are God's people because of God's work and God's word. God gave them the victory. So this is the book of Joshua. It's all about the conquest of Canaan. And yet we're told about these victories on the eastern side of the Jordan. Now that's important for them then, it's important for us now. Because here we sit in the 21st century and there are a lot of things that potentially divide God's people all around the world. Ethnicities, racial divides, political uh, fever pitches, socioeconomic statuses, economic backgrounds, educational backgrounds, theological underpinnings, who knows whatever it might be, denominational traditions, a lot of things that can potentially divide. But those people on the other side of the planet where it's dark, who are below the equator, so it's summer. If they are God's people, they are God's people because of God's work and God's word. And we must remember that they literally are us over there. And then more practically, more pertinently, it can even happen in a congregation where perhaps there are a group of people, maybe they're the majority, maybe they're the minority, that just have this sort of victori this victorious air that they are crushing middle-class life and they're living large and they have everything going for them where there's other people who are experiencing pain or death of a loved one or financial crisis or disease or addiction or end of marriages or whatever. And there becomes this divide and we think, well, these people are God's people. Those people sure be wooden nice if one day they could be God's people too. No, 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 no. We must never forget. God's people are God's people because of God's work and God's word. Now then, as we're reminded of that from verse one, this little introductory verse provides it for us, let's get into very briefly these first couple battles as a reminder, as a recounting the lore of Israel. Verse two, Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and who ruled from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites that is half of Gilead. Okay, super exciting. Hold on. And the Arabah to the Sea of Kinneroth, that's up in the Galilee, and in the direction of Bet Yeshimoth, to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, to, uh, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. What's going on? As the people of Israel come up out of Egypt, they do their 40 laps. They're not lost. They know exactly where they are. Everybody in Canaan knows exactly where they are. Now it's finally time to go in. They pass through the land of Seir, which is another way of saying Edom, where modern Petra is today. They pass through, they're not bothered. They don't take their fruits, their vegetables, their fields, their vineyards, nothing. They just pass right through. It's the last time the Edomites will leave them alone. Thereafter, the Edomites will harass Israel over and over again until finally God says, you know what? I think I'm just going to exterminate you. That's the book of Obadiah. And by AD 70, there are no more Edomites alive in the, in the world anywhere. God takes that very seriously. So they pass through. And they come to this kingdom of the Amorites. It's about a 90-mile stretch from south of the Dead Sea all the way up to about halfway through what is modern Jordan. 90 miles. This guy named Sihon. He's the king of the Amorites. That may not mean a whole lot to you. You may not care. Remember, we are recounting our lore as Israel. 
Some 400 years earlier, God comes to a barren guy named Abram with a barren wife, and he says, I'm gonna make you many nations. In fact, I'm gonna change your name. You're not gonna be called the father of many nations. In Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22, I'm going to do this, but for 400 years, your offspring are gonna go down into Egypt because the wickedness of the Amorites has not yet ripened. That's Genesis 15, 16. Well, for 400 years, the wickedness of these Amorites has ripened. Disgusting, idolatrous practices, including child sacrifice, where they would roast their firstborn boys in a brass bull in some attempt to bring out the fertility of the land. It was a horrible, despicable, violent culture, and God said, I've given them 400 years to repent. I've written my law on their conscience, and that's my land, and the land must have redemption, and the wages of sin is death. And so Moses says, hey, listen, we're not trying to wipe you out. We will, buy mon- we will buy food with money. We will buy water from you with money. We won't step aside and take your fields or your vineyards or anything. We just want to pass through on our way into the land. Now, you can read all about this in Numbers 21. And then Moses gives his own commentary on this in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. Sihon says, oh, no, you don't. I won't let you through. You shall not pass. Because he spoke King James back then as well. He says, no, Sihon and the Amorites muster for battle. They come out, Moses and Israel, who, by the way, have never been trained in battle by this point. They were just raking sheep stuff in Egypt, but they all muster together and they annihilate the Amorites. Gone, wipe them out. Sihon is gone. It's an incredible battle. Yahweh gives them the victory outright. Moving forward. Not a verse four. And Og, King Bashan. Og, did you? Oh. oh, if you're an Israelite, if you hear Og, you just drop and you go cross-legged and you can't wait for story time. Og is the, for those of you who are kind of into the Marvel universe, Og is Thanos. He is the big, bad villain. When I say big and bad, what I mean by that is he's big and he's bad. He's a giant. I mean, literally, he's a giant. There are three species of giants in your Old Testament. There are the Nephilim from Genesis 6. They were huge. Some sort of weird things were going on there, angelically, demonically. Then you have the uh, Anakim, the sons of Anak, that were giants. And then you have the Rephaim. We don't know how there are still giants after the flood in Genesis 6, but somehow, because of mutation or Taco Bell or something... There was weirdnesses happening, and there were still three different species of giants walking around, and Og is one of them. We're told in Deuteronomy 3 that Og had to have a special custom bed made. <laughs> it was made completely of iron. That ain't cheap. And it was 13 and a half feet long just so that he could barely fit. Og was a bad dude. And by the way, I deal with a lot of sweet young couples that have been, gotten married and they're about to have a baby. And when they ask me, what do we name our kid? I always say Og. Nobody has yet. Nobody, I don't know why. Og. Terrible name. He's one of the enemies of Israel. He rules a 60-mile stretch of kingdom just north of Sihon's kingdom, again on the east side of the Jordan, everything up to Mount Hermon. So Sihon had 90 miles. This guy has 60 miles all the way up to what is today between Lebanon and Syria. Moses says, hey, can we please pass through? We will not bother you. We won't take your vineyards. We won't take your fields. We won't take your water. We'll pay you with money. What money, by the way? Oh, that's right. They took all the Egyptians, not the dollar bills, y'all. They took all the Egyptians' money. They're going to buy food. And Og says, I, Og, no. And he comes out in battle. 
and Moses and the Israelites utterly annihilate the Bashanites. All these who were under Og, they are eradicated, annihilated, and exterminated. God's people are God's people because of God's work and God's word. So Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, those are the giants who lived at Ashtaroth and Edre and ruled over Mount Hermon and Salakai and Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Machathites and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sion, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land a possession to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Wow, God did it regardless of whether it was Moses or Joshua. God did it. God's people are God's people because of God's work and God's word. Some of you perhaps come to Bethel, either members or visiting from a different tradition or denomination or congregation or whatever. And perhaps for some of you, you grew up reciting the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or something else. And you might remember that in the Apostles' Creed, there's a guy who's been commemorated and immortalized for a couple thousand years now, Pontius Pilate. He is the one under whom our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ suffered, that Jesus, the judge of the cosmos, has to stand trial before Pontius Pilate, suffered under Pontius Pilate. In the same way, for thousands of years, Sion and Og represent creedily, commemoratively, the enemies of Israel being vanquished by God. He is their creed. We already read Psalm 105. Were we to have continued in Psalm 105, it would have mentioned Sihon and Og by name. You can read Psalm 135, Psalm 136, and the bad guys representatively are Sihon and Og. And when we count our blessings, it's good to be reminded that there have been some Sihons and some Ogs that God took down that we could not have done so on our own. We count our blessings. All right, so let me stop right there before we get to verse 7. A little bit of an interlude, all right? So here's the practical reality. Listening to a sermon on Joshua 12 in a Bible church in East Texas in 2023. Here's kind of I was thinking through and preparing for all of this this morning. Here's the practical reality for a great many Christians. Our daily moment-by-moment thought processes sound at least a little like this. And if this is just me, then praise God, so be it. You're all super above awesome. But just having lots of conversations with people, this is what I've I've picked up. Just put this together. This is kind of what I hear. It goes like this. I know that God is good and that he's faithful and that one day I'll go to heaven when I die. But in the meantime... It feels like God has pretty much left my life to me. And I've just got to do the best I can to rack up some wins and to minimize the losses. I get that the Bible says that God will never leave nor forsake me from Joshua 1, quoted in Hebrews. I get that. But most days, it just feels like he's very distant and not very interested in what I have going on with my struggles, my relationships, my dreams, and pretty much anything else. I would never say this out loud, especially in church, but really and practically, what has God done for me lately? Now, maybe you would never say that out loud, but perhaps that thought has bounced around in your soul. That's ever happened to you, at least a little, then this is for you, and it's our second point of application or implication for the morning, and it goes like this. God's people are produced by God's promise. God's people are produced by God's promise, not because of your power or charm or awesomeness. 
whether we want to admit it or not, we're all products and we're all affected by our culture that does tend to act in a posture of, what have you done for me lately? It's okay. Our Bibles get us. Our Bibles read us more than we read them. That's because the author of our Bible gets us. He knows our struggle. And so a lot of what our Bibles are trying to do is to teach us and inspire us away from thinking, what have you done for me lately? And instead, our Bibles train our hearts and our minds and our congregations to ask, what have you done for me greatly? We tend to drift in our depravity, descend in our sin. What have you done for me lately? But instead, our Bibles are compelling us, teaching us, training us to say, what have you done for me greatly? Again, some 400 years before the conquest, God comes to Abram and he says, I'm going to do a thing in and through you. The world has gone to heck in a handbasket. How am I going to save it? Through you pagan moon worshiper with a barren wife who lives in Baghdad, <laughs> you're going to walk to this land and I'm going to redeem the world from here because that's the kind of God that I am. And I'm going to give you land, all this land. Look in the sky, Abram. Can you count the stars? Stop. Math's terrible. Can you count the sand on this? Stop. Math's awful. But I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you offspring that are innumerable. I'm going to give you blessing. Joshua chapter 12 is the cataloging. It's the card catalog of the fulfillment of all the promises that God makes to Abram 400 plus years earlier. Did it take longer than most expected or even wanted? Yes, but not by God's economy, perfectly and precisely on time. And so what follows, verses seven and eight, is a complete cataloging of that geography. Now it would be better if we had a map. We've got a map, we're gonna put it on screen. You can see this if it's helpful. The point of this little two-verse passage is just to show you that what God said in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22, he has done. The first 11 chapters are all sort of the high points of what happens. Chapter 12 gets very granular and very specific. And these are the kings of the land of whom Joshua and the people of Israel, verse 7, defeated on the west side of the Jordan from Baal Gad, that's way up in, near Caesarea Philippi, in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak, that's the bald mountain near the Dead Sea, that rises towards Seir, that's Edom, where Petra is. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession, according to their allotment, in the hill country, in the lowland, to the Arabah, in the slopes in the wilderness, and in the Negev, that's the southern desert, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. All these things God has done. And then in verses 9 through 24, whoo, now comes the fun part. We're going to get a list of 31 kings. And I want you to hear them because we're counting our blessings. I want you to hear the specificity and the detail. Why? Because this is history. There are 16 kings in the south. There are 15 kings in the north. If sometime you're on Bible Jeopardy, hey, how many kings were there in the conquest that were defeated? 31, 16 south, 15 north. You ready? Here we go. It's a scorecard. This is how God helps us to count our blessings. Beginning in verse nine. The king of Jericho, one. Do you see the little tick mark that God gives? The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one, the king of Jarmuth, one, the king of Lachish, one, the king of Eglon, one, the king of Gezer, one. Yeah, but he was old. <laughs> it's a joke. The king of Debir, one, the king of Geder, one, the king of Hormah, 
one, the king of Arad, one, the king of Libna, one, the king of Adullam, one, the king of Machedah, one, the king of Bethel, one, the king of Tapua, one, the king of Hefer, fat cow, one, the king of Aphek, one, the king of uh, Lasharon, one, the king of Madon, one, the king of Hazor, one, the king of Shimron, Moron, one, the king of Ashaf, one, the king of Tanakh, one, the king of Megiddo, one, the king of Kadesh, one, the king of Jokneam and Carmel, one, the king of Dor and Naaf, Dor, one, the king of Golim and Galilee, one, the king of Tirzah, one, in all 31 kings. God said it, God did it. Now we'll find out next week, Lord willing, as we go into chapter 13 and the allotment and the distribution of the land where Joshua begins to record some of his sermons, there was still more work to do. These were the kingdoms, these were the city-states. There was still going to be more work to do because that's how life in the kingdom of God works. That's how a person in the Messianic people experiences their existence, and that's okay. But this chapter is not merely a boring list of names and places. Please hear me. It is the lore of God and his people, and it's absolutely an essential theology that helps us to think rightly. It's a recounting of the blessings of what God has done for them greatly. I came across this this week as often to one of my heroes in the faith, a guy named Dale Ralph Davis. He puts it this way. Faith that gives thanks in detail is nurtured and encouraged to expect more mercies. Let me say that again. Faith, I believe, I'm persuaded, that gives thanks in detail is nurtured and encouraged to expect more mercies from our God. So I begin to be trained and practiced, not in what have you done for me lately, but since you have done for me greatly, I can't wait to see what is next. Do you see? That's the point of Psalm 105 that Peyton read for us to begin with. Psalm 135, Psalm 136, that even mentions Sihon and Og. I see what you have done for us greatly. I can't wait to see what you're going to do for us lately. A different attitude entirely. God's people are produced by God's promise. And for us to continue to thrive as God's people, it's critical and crucial that we count our blessings. Not just broadly, not just, oh God, thanks for our blessings, let's eat. Uh, God, I thank you for my extended family, that there is health. I thank you for our financial well-being. We don't deserve that. I thank you for a campus of believers that are eagerly pulling the rope in the same direction, that are all about the gospel, sounding forth. I thank you for a wife and a marriage, and I thank you for my children who are healthy, who love the Lord, who walk lockstep closer with Jesus than I do. I thank you for elders in this congregation who are pulling the rope even harder for the gospel than I am. (laughs) my day is better than yours. Faith that expresses thanks in detail is nurtured. It is encouraged to expect more mercies. And so here's a little bit of an unusual activity to help us take away something from this passage. Since it is a little bit different of a text, I wanted to address it just a little bit differently. Here's what God has done for us greatly. This is how I often count our blessings. Here's our story. It's not a psalm. It's just our lore. Now, some of you have been in this congregation since Noah was a boy. Good for you. And perhaps you've heard most of this. Great. It's good to be reminded. Some of you are visiting or you're very, very new and you've never heard any of this before. Great. I want you to hear how God has made for himself a people. No, not out of Abram and Ur the Chaldees, but even more dramatically in some ways. 
There's a little place west of the Canadian Rockies called the Okanagan Valley. And in the Okanagan Valley, some of you might know it, there's a little town called Armstrong in British Columbia. And I'd already bought a plane ticket, and I'd been in correspondence with them, and I was going in view of a call to be their senior pastor many, many, many years ago. We'd been in Tyler, had gone through a really rough season at a previous church, and I was gone. I was out. To tell you how long ago this was, I had to get a bunch of sermons and burn them on CD and DVD and mail them to them. Yeah, that's right. And then I had to like fax some confirmation. You remember fax? (laughs) And I was going to go in August of that summer to go in view of a call to Pastor Armstrong First Church in Armstrong, British Columbia. But a group of people in Tyler said, hey, we think you might want to wait. We think you should pray about staying in Tyler and uh, planning a church in downtown Tyler. (laughs) I said, I'm not praying about that. No way. I'm afraid of what God might say. I'm not doing that. I'm out of here. We had some heartburn, Candle. We had some wounds. And so we were like, I'm not going to pray about that. I'm leaving. I said, no, no, no. We really think you should pray about that. I said, fine, fine. And so I prayed like this. God, if you really want me to stay in Tyler. Fortunately, God can handle that kind of prayer. (laughs) And so we prayed and we prayed. And I'll tell you transparently and candidly and confessionally, we put out some Gideon-like fleeces. And God, is this your plan? Then you're going to have to show us because we feel like we're gone. And God did greatly. God answered with specificity that I, I would recount from the stage and many of you would probably not maybe believe, but he did. And so we stuck around. We started, and, we, and I'm like, I'm not really sure how this is going to go. I'm not a starter. I'm not really even a pastor, as you all well know, and I don't know how to do anything. And, and So you know what? There's a church in Waco. The church in Waco, I think I might go to a church in Waco. And this group of people said, no, 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 we think you should pray about really starting a church in Tyler. We think there needs to be expository teaching in the center of the city. And I was like, have you seen the center of the city? It looks like tombstone after the credits roll. It's gone. It's dead. Like, no, we really think you should do it. I don't want to pray about this. And so I, fine, I prayed about it. And the Lord confirmed and confirmed again and again and again. And it was humbling and it was thrilling. And so we began to meet and talk about what would it look like. Not saying that it's the only way to do church in town. We're not saying that. We were just saying it's the only way that we know how to do church. The only way we feel called to do church. And so a group of people, people came around us and we began meeting at Times Square Cinema, which is not downtown if you haven't noticed. But it was as close as we could get at the time because there was nothing else around. And I would walk up to preach on a Sunday morning and it sounded like this. because of the Dr. Pepper and the Gucci fruits that were just all over the floor. Ugh. And, and if you think you've had a challenging marriage, well, let me just tell you, when your wife is running projection, <laughs> that's the challenging marriage, but we got through it. And we had our children's ministry in another theater, and we walk over, and we realize, gosh, the kids have been so good, they haven't moved in 45 minutes. Well, that's because they were stuck to the floor. And they, they couldn't move. They were stuck with Gucci fruits and Dr. Pepper. And we endured all that. Meanwhile, I'm having breakfast about once a month with my good, good, good friend, Ross Strader. And he's asking me, how's the church going? Ah, it's pretty weird. It's kind of tough. We're in a movie theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we would just get together and have breakfast. And we decided one day, hey, why don't we bring a couple professors in from Dallas Seminary, and we're going to have just a day and a half seminar. And I said, well, hey, can can our church called Arbor Bible at the time, can we come and be part of it? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I said, oh, oh, by the way, we don't have any money. (laughs) And so... Not even any Egyptian money? No, we don't have any money. And so, yeah, Brian, come on. So we came, and we were together out there one time, one campus at the South 69. And as I'm standing around with a bunch of our people from that little church, a lady walked up, and she put her finger in my face, and she said, hey, I don't know you, 
who are you and why are you here? And I said, oh, well, it, it, nice to meet you. Uh, my name's Eric. I'm the pastor of Arbor Bible, and we're here to do this seminar thing together. And she goes, why aren't you just us? And what I wanted to say was, well, y'all ain't paying me. I didn't say that, okay? I didn't say it. I said, well, you know, we're, I did some sort of very churchy thing. Like, we're following God, and we're in the Spirit, and loved by the Father, and, you know, all that. I, I didn't, I was like, that's a weird question. Later, I called Ross. I was like, hey, the funniest thing, this lady, and I told him who it was. He was like, oh, wow, yeah, sorry. And I said, this is what happened. He goes, yeah, that's funny, but, you know, it is a good question. He said, we've been praying about someone in Tyler that would have a heart to preach God's word in the center of the city. I said, oh my gosh, we've been praying about that too, but this just, this just doesn't ever work. You can't, you can't merge churches. There's too much ego and too much power. And Ross said, well, I, I don't care. You can have it. You can lead it all. I, just, I said, no, I don't care. I don't want to lead anything ever, clearly. And he said, well, why don't we, why don't we do that badly together? <laughs> okay. And so we did. We became Bethel. Took a vote to merge churches on September 11th. Great time to join churches on September 11th. Voted unanimously to merge churches, and we kept meeting in Times Square. And then we found this building. We entered into it as renters, and it looked like uh, a hydrogen bomb had gone off in it. We were only able to meet on this floor. The stage was way down there at that time. And so if you were seated in this room during the service, anyone from about here back you didn't know or care there was a sermon going on, so you were having your own conversations while I was preaching. Very affirming, by the way. Thank you. So as soon as we bought this building, well, I rearranged it because I wanted to see, I see you back there, Kevin. I know what's happening. And so we wanted to have this sort of intimate deal. A lot of really bad things happened. We were renting this, this building. A lot of bad things were happening financially and just things were going crazy. And yet God was doing greatly. The, the community was beginning to be transformed because we were meeting with the mayor and saying, we want to put in a coffee house that's going to serve the downtown community to create a space in which we invite in the public. And we want to see the downtown businesses revitalized because we wanted to seek the welfare of the city because when the city prospers, we prosper. That's what we want to do. And the mayor got behind us. And before we knew it, <laughs> they just built us a $9 million parking garage. Like... And they were like, hey, but you're going to have to pay for that. And so we did for the first year. And they're like, oh, by the way, garage is now free. And we said, thank you. It's incredible. I had a good friend visit from First Baptist Dallas. He said, how did you get a parking garage? We had to pay for ours, and it was $11 million. I said, big God, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know what I'm doing. We had to leave this building and vacate the lease because one Sunday morning we walked in to have worship service and right in this room, right on this floor, there was a 12-foot square neon lit bar with beer and cigarettes everywhere. And praise God, Mike Hall was not on staff yet or he would have said, fire it up, but he didn't. So we had to leave. We literally walked down the street. We went to Liberty Theater and we stayed there for about 13, 14 months while we bought this building, renovated it, and we've moved back in. And I just want to say, the things that have happened above and beyond my expectation or my leadership or my capacity to envision and dream, where people have come to faith, where people, adults have been baptized, who have stepped out of death into life, who have broken out of addiction, marriages that were dead, buried, and gone came back to life. Oh, there's been problems. There's been resistance. We've, we've faced some ogs and some sihons. But, but God has done for us greatly. 
And we continue to see the, the going forth of ministry from this place and how our entire downtown community from the foundry up and out is being transformed, not because of me or anybody else, but because the gospel sounds forth. God has done for us greatly. So I want to count our blessings. And because of that, I also want to tell you what God is doing for us lately. The end of uh, this month, the very beginning of February, we will execute our option to purchase the two adjacent buildings to us over here to the east. That means we will close on those buildings uh, the very first of March, Lord willing, and we will occupy or inhabit those buildings to do ministry in a real way beginning April 3rd-ish. So Palm Sunday, Easter this year is April 9th. We are convinced that God has done much and that God wants to do more in and through us above and beyond what we can imagine or expect, that the community continues to be transformed, that in the next five years, downtown Tyler and Tyler on the whole is going to experience 30 years of growth in a five-year time span with what's happening to the building across the street, the med school being built, lots of other um, uh, residences being built around downtown Tyler. We understand that we're in a position of growth, and so we are wildly excited about what God is doing, what he has done for us greatly, helps us to pray and plan and prepare for what he is doing for us lately. But that's not all. I want to keep going as we land this plane, as we are trained and compelled to count our blessings. All this passage, believe it or not, Joshua chapter 12, leads us back to Jesus. This is not just about what's going on at our campus. It's always principally, foundationally about Jesus. He is the word of God, and it is his work that builds a people. He is the fulfillment of God's promise always. The book of Joshua is that God is our salvation. It points us to, prepares us for the one who is true Joshua, Jesus. And just as we saw all the victories detailed in Joshua 12, remember, that is history. All that specificity, geographically, politically, all that is absolute history where God dealt with the enemies of God's people. <laughs> we want to be reminded that I was numbered among those lists of enemies. But rather than vanquish and destroy me, the Son of God invites me in and makes me his own. That's the here and that's the now. And just as Joshua 12 catalogs history, then we have the culmination of all future history. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, it's the climax of the book of Revelation, and it goes like this. John records that an angel blows his seventh trumpet, and then all the voices of heaven say, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Some of you who know Handel's Messiah almost stood up. That's a good thing. That is future history, which leads me to our third and final point of application. God's people are permanent. Just as sure and as certain as Joshua took those 31 kings because of the work and the word of God, it is future history that our Lord Jesus, true Joshua, will return and he will rule and he will reign literally, legally, and logistically from Jerusalem. And he has for himself a people and that people is permanent. We go on forever and ever and ever, which makes me ask the question of myself, of my family, and of my church. What has God done for us greatly? Do you see what he will do for us lately until such time as he should return? But in that meantime, 
I want to invite all of us to be so fully invested in this little pocket of people that God has made by his promise. So if you're not involved in what we're doing now or what we're about to embark upon, because again, we've prayed about it and God has confirmed it again and again. If you're not involved financially supporting the ministries of this church and the expansion of this church, I just want you to know we just concluded a capital campaign to buy those buildings. Hear me, praise God, the money has been raised. We will buy those buildings with cash. It's astonishing. I am so overwhelmed with gratitude. And we will need more to fund the ministries of those spaces and this. So if you're not participating yet, I want to challenge you to ask God if that is his plan for you before your head hits the pillow tonight. Is that God's plan for you? And if that's not, will you at least continue to engage prayerfully? We've seen that God's work and God's word works mightily. Would you engage prayerfully? Would you engage ministerially at some level? We've got something like 20 plus life groups going now. Our children's ministry is exploding. Y'all are a fertile people. We've got all kinds of things going on. Women's ministries, men's ministries. Our student ministry is growing. There's opportunities for you to engage. But you might not feel like doing that if you're not counting our blessings. So I invite you to do that. Rehearse our lore. Great is his faithfulness. Then, now, and forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance to hear and recite the lore of your people Israel and to hear and recite the lore of this church and this campus. Father, I pray that though you have done so much, we ask that you would continue to march on, King Jesus, right on. And that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. And if there's someone here this morning, Father, who is not persuaded that you, through your Son, are inviting enemies to be firstborns, would you persuade them? If you're sitting in this room this morning and you're not persuaded, I invite you to have a conversation with me, with one of our staff, one of our elders, one of our deacons, one of our ministry leaders, to see what it is that's holding you back. Perhaps it's nothing really there at all. For the rest of us, Father, I challenge all of us, me included, to count our blessings, to set aside time to remember what you have done greatly. We look forward to being nurtured and encouraged to expect more of your mercies as we do that. Father, thanks for loving us in your work, through your word, by your spirit, because of your son, and as your people. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.